How beautiful on this New Year's Eve day to sing praise to our great God and invite you to remain standing as we turn our attention to the scripture of the day today, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Can you believe it? We are here, 119 Sundays of Matthew. It's a little over two years, Um, not straight through, but here we come to the end, and it's a great ending, which is actually more of a beginning. So Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, hear the word of the living God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, look at this. I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truths on our hearts this morning. Let us pray once again. Father, thank you. Thank you for Matthew. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for saving him and calling him out of darkness and sin, Lord, and giving him life and light and and calling him to be your disciple and and then leading him as a witness to write this gospel, these these truths, this good news that has been such a source of hope and joy and learning and, and conviction to my heart and I'm sure to many other, others of my brothers and sisters here, Lord, over these last couple years. We praise you today and we ask today, Lord, that this closing text would not fall on ears that, um, that would be lazy in any way, but they would fall on ears that are ready and willing to be obedient, Lord, the obedience of faith, to get to work, to the mission that you've not only called us to, but equipped us for. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name, powerful, holy name, the one with all authority, his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Happy New Year. I know um, it's raining a little bit today. It's a little abnormal for us in San Diego, but I am saying that because I know, uh, you know, a lot of kids obviously are in the room as normal, and we are a family church, and so we've got a lot of kids, and we've got a lot of kids that will at times make noise, and I know some of you moms, I've seen you try to go out the doors and such, and appreciate that, trying to serve the congregation, but I know today it's raining, you don't need to go outside, (laughs) just stay. I'll be loud, louder than any of them, okay? So, appreciate... uh, you coming to worship together on the last day of the year. What a great year to, day to, what a great time to, way to close out the new year. So on the eve of a new year, we come to the end of Matthew's gospel. And it has been life-changing for me. It's been eye-opening um, in so many ways to go through this, this incredible story of the life of Christ. From the perspective of Matthew, a good Jewish disciple who writes primarily to Jews, and we've learned a bit about what that means and what it meant for uh, these disciples who were all Jewish men, the the 12, and 
Now we're down to 11. And so we come to the end of the gospel, but it's actually a, a commencement, as you'll see. It's the beginning of a whole new age, of a whole new chapter. Um, when we look, it's like a graduation. You know they call a graduation, what kind of ceremony? It's a commencement ceremony. A lot of times we look at graduating, you, you've done with school, you've finished. No, actually, you're just beginning. It's the beginning of something, and that's what we have before us today is the beginning of something amazing in the Great Commission. Uh, this isn't unique just to Matthew, although the gospel presents this commission in different ways. Matthew is probably the clearest and, and, and the most uh, uh, detailed in, in, in some of these ways, but Mark tells us in Mark 16, 15, to, Jesus says to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Matthew's going to encourage the same thing here, and not just encourage, but command the same thing. Luke, in chapter 24, writes, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then in John, chapter 20, it says, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so there's this, this thrust of, of mission, of sending, which is the word missio, or the Latin word send, to send comes from. There's a sending that we're going to see here. And it comes down to it, this is the mission statement of the church of Jesus Christ. Not just our church, it's the mission statement of every single church. We don't have a right to come up with our own mission statements. That's popular in, in, in the world, right? And you have a business, you should have a mission. You should have a clear, concise mission that you're after, a goal that you're pursuing. You know, any organization should have a goal. Well, we have a goal. Our mission, and we've stated in these words that are in our church, is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. And if you didn't know that, shame on me. We're not making it clear enough, but today I hope to make it as clear as possible that this is our mission. This is why we exist as a church. This is why the church of Jesus Christ exists. To give God glory, going about the mission of making disciples of all nations. This word mission is a commission. This is what the, the mission is called in Matthew, the great Commission, commission. It, it's, it's, it's like a military term where you have a commissioned officer. He has a, a authority from above to go accomplish something. I like the word commission as well. It, it comes from the Latin commissio, which, which comes from the, the prefix with, right? Co with, and then missio, sending. So you're being sent with something, with someone with good news, and, and, and really it helps identify the, the mission. It's not just our mission. It's the mission of Jesus Christ himself. It's why he came, to seek and save the lost. He came to change lives, to transform us into the image of himself, the perfect man. And then he invites us to be a part of this mission. No, it doesn't just invite. He commands us to be a part of this mission. This is why we are here. This is why we exist. And so four things this morning as we go back through the text on the Great Commission. First, we're going to look at the people of the commission. Secondly, the premise of the commission. Third, the precepts of the commission. And fourthly, the promise to the commissioned. And I hope you're challenged and encouraged this morning to get about this work. 
Point number one, you can follow along on your notes, the people of the commission. This answers the question, who, who, who does this? The people of the commission. And what we're going to find out is it's done by a group of very imperfect worshipers of the very perfect man. Matthew starts off verse 16 and says this, Now the eleven disciples. I don't know about you, but when I read that, it stopped me in my tracks. There's supposed to be twelve. Twelve is enough in Scripture. It's a, it's a number of fulfillment and completeness. And, and the twelve tribes of Israel. And, and then Jesus picked the twelve apostles. And, and, and now you have eleven. We know the, the, the twelve is now gone. He was the betrayer. He was in the plan of God, the, the, the son of perdition. He was the one who, who betrayed the living Christ and ultimately led to his execution and death. So there's not 12 here, there's 11, but why? And I, I think I've seen throughout the study of Matthew that Matthew is very particular on why he puts things in there and the language that he uses. So he wants us to know, yes, there's a fact that there's 11 disciples there, um, I think we're going to see it, that there's a strong possibility that when they hear this actual commission from Jesus himself, it's not just the 11. I happen to think there's probably a whole lot, a, a large crowd there, perhaps the crowd Paul talks to the Corinthian church about where there's up to 500 people. But Matthew's pointing out that there's 11, and perhaps one reason why 11 is mentioned related back to verse 10 that we looked at last week where tells the, the women at the t empty tomb when they see him resurrected, go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. Remember this, this amazing thought of the, the theme of forgiveness and restoration and reestablishing of these sinful men who were hiding behind locked doors. Fearful of the Jews. Fearful of their own safety. Fearful that they themselves might be hanging across very soon, and yet Jesus wants them to be the first to know, you, you go tell, go, ladies, I, you, you've seen me alive, go tell my brothers. I want them to know I love them, that I forgive them, and that I'm going to use them, imperfect as they are. So it might be that the, the lesson of the 11 is that the church of Jesus sends into the world 11-ish, imperfect, fallible people. And yet Jesus uses this very imperfect church, this perfect work. Knowing what I know of, of the New Testament, I, I think of imperfect Peter. Several times we, we get the curtain pulled back on his life and we see him dropping the ball even later on in life as an apostle. We see him failing to see things and understand things. We see him leaning back into the law as opposed to grace. What I know of the New Testament, what I know of men like Peter, what I know of, of, of my church, what I know of me, I think this is an encouraging word before we hear the words go and make disciples. Now the 11 disciples, it says they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We don't know exactly what mountain that was. Um, there's a lot of speculation, but I think it's helpful to understand that that this is not the first time that the, the, at least the apostles are going to see, the disciples are going to see the risen Christ. They had seen him before in Jerusalem. This is later on, perhaps a, a few weeks later, when the Great Commission is going to be given. And we know at least a week, because it would take about a week to walk from Jerusalem to Galilee. 
Why is this commission sent in Galilee? I think Matthew is instructive here as a, a good Jew, wanting to make sure that his good Jewish brethren understand that, listen, we can't stay stuck. This is going to take us out to the world. It's going to take us to, as Isaiah writes in chapter 9, the Galilee of the Gentiles and beyond. This is paradigm shifting. This is massive earthquake type stuff in the lives of these Jewish men. And so they go to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus directed them. And in verse 17 it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. And what else could you do but worship the risen Christ? natural, it was certainly supernatural that they would see the risen Christ and they would fall on their face and worship him, the one who was alive from the dead, the resurrected God-man. So they worshiped him, but then Matthew points, but some doubted. So you have this picture of this duplicity. There's worship going on of the risen Christ. They're seeing him. Then there's some that are seeing him that are looking at him and and there's a doubt going on. And now the, the word doubt here doesn't mean, uh, it, 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 it's the verb distazzo, which doesn't, it denotes more of a, a, a not a settled unbelief, but a, a state of uncertainty or a hesitancy. It means to hesitate. They, they hesitated. And I think rightly so. I mean, I, it's, it's kind of, is this too good to be true? Is this, I mean, he said so, but I, can I believe my eyes? This is the most incredible, amazing thing that's ever happened in human history. What's going on? I, 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 I want to believe. And that gives me hope as well for, for those who are going to take this mission in advance. It, Matthew wants us to know that again, this commission is going to be done by some very imperfect disciples who are worshiping and yet dealing with hesitancy at the same time. It puts me in a good position. It helps us understand the power of God behind the commission. Because it's not in the people of the commission. The people of the commission are weak and and struggling and hesitant. But God does work through such people. And I don't know about you, that gives me hope. That gives me courage and strengthens me to think, man, if you can use people like this, you can use me, Lord. Think of these disciples. Think of the 11. Where were they when the women saw the living Christ? They weren't at the tomb. They were, as I said earlier, they were behind locked doors, hiding, fearful. And, and then Jesus comes through the door and doesn't have to open it, appears to them, right? And, then, and, and it's interesting because commentators spent pages and pages and pages trying to figure out how, how did Jesus get in there? Like, he, wow, it's amazing. And it is amazing. I think the greater miracle isn't so much how Jesus got in there in his resurrected body. The greater miracle that these disciples that were behind the locked doors got out and changed the world. They literally went from fear to this massive courage, and, 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 and they were very imperfect men. Gives me hope. These first band of disciples go out. Who are they? Men like Peter, the rash, brash, headstrong Peter. John, who sometimes wishes fire to call to come down from heaven to destroy people. I don't like you. God, send fire and destroy that guy. <laughs> Philip, who the Savior had been with so long, and yet he had not known him. Thomas, who said, I'm not believing until I put my, my hand in the, in, and touch the, the nail prints of his hands. And yet the Master will say to all of them and more, to go into all the world. 
You are as good for my purpose as anybody else would be. There's no power in you, I know. All power is in him. So go. That's where the commission is going. And this is all throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. You know what I am? I'm just a clay pot with a bunch of cracks in it. That's who we are. And yet inside of us is priceless treasure. Why? Paul says to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. It's not a pat on the back to us. It's not an attaboy to us. It's, it's all glory to God. We sang it earlier. All glory be forever to him and him alone. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Oh, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says, think about it. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is our boast. He's our all in all. We are imperfect, and thus we are marked with Dependency. Dependency. And thank God. Thank God. We have one we can depend on. Point two. The premise of the commission. And the premise of this commission shows who he is and out of who he is, why we do what we do. Why the mission? Why the commission? It says in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them. See it, they're all gathered around. They're on this mountain. And Jesus, the resurrected Christ, comes and says to them these words, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All is going to dominate this text that's before us today. It, it, It ties all of these verses together. All authority, all nations, all things, all the days. And it starts with all authority. This is nothing less than the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds like a son of man. 
and came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the ruler of all saying, it's all mine. This is the Revelation 1, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of, on earth. This is the authority of, of, of Christ as explained by Paul to the Ephesian church that says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, fullness of him, all in all. This is the authority of, of Christ, of the risen Christ. All authority in heaven, all authority on earth. The authority explained by Paul to the Philippian church. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not suggestions. This is fact and truth and this is, this is demands. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we are to bow before him. Colossians 15 said he's the image of the invisible God. Think, pause for a second with me. Hear what I'm saying. Hear the scriptures. It's hard for us to grasp. We just celebrated Christmas. The incarnation, the God-man, the God-become-man, born of a virgin. Perfect man, fully man, fully God. Visited our planet as one of us, died for us, rose for us, conquered sin and death for us. Creator, the one who spoke power with power, with all power and authority as man. And now he had died and now he's risen. He's not yet ascended to heaven. But before he does, he gives this incredible foundation for what he's going to call his disciples to do. And it's all based on who he is. He, Paul says, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Think of it, all the fullness of God in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So when we think of Jesus Christ the Lord, we should not just 
We shouldn't just stop at Savior. Oh, to be our Savior is glorious. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's such good news. He's Lord, or He's Savior over us, but He's also the Lord of all. And you can't separate those two. He has all authority. He has authority over nature, authority over nations, authority over disease and demons, authority over sin and death, authority over my life, authority over your life, over every single life. Abraham Kuyper, as I've shared so often, said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. It's all his. The shoes you have on, the car you drive, the home you live in, the tree in your yard, the food on your table today, your lunch. He's Lord over all. He's Lord over your lunch. That's why we give thanks. At least we should. He's Lord over your life. He's Lord over our thoughts. He's Lord over all. That's power. Is there anything left out of all authority in heaven and on earth? Is there anything left out? Not a single molecule. Now we struggle at times with such with power, but I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, power in the hands of some people is dangerous, but power in the hands of Christ is blessed. Oh, let him have all power. Let him do what he will with it, for he cannot will anything but that which is right and just and true and good. And so we believe in this power and we rest in this power. We don't seek any other power. We defy every other power. We know that our powerlessness and our humanity and our limitations will never hinder the progress of His kingdom, the growth of His church. So we submit to Him and we yield to Him, the one with all power and all authority. It is His all authority that sends us. It's it's His all authority that, that guides us. It's His all authority that empowers us It's a co-mission, remember. He is with us in this mission. His work and message would continue. He will ascend to heaven. Matthew doesn't record that. The other, other Gospels do. But as He ascends to heaven, His work, His mission will continue through His disciples and 2,000 years later, through His disciples. His authority is what compels us to go. It's the fuel for our mission. It, it, it's, it's the worship of Him, the one with all authority, that is the goal of our mission. It gives us confidence as we go. Thirdly, we see the precepts of the commission. Built upon the foundation of the premise of, of who He is, that all authority is, is, is in Him, on heaven and on earth. So now what do we do? What are the principles? that we're supposed to walk out and accomplish? How do we respond? What's the action steps we're supposed to take? Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Let's break this apart a little bit and, and talk a little bit about it because it's in the English it, it, it's harder to, to grasp in, in the Greek, the, the main thrust of this verse here, these two verses, is make disciples. It's the, it's the verb that's used. The other uh, uh, 
things that look like verbs like go is actually they're actually participles. So you know, going. So the, the thrust is is make disciples. It it it's it's a verse nineteen has a therefore in it, which really goes takes us back to verse eighteen because he has all authority because of what he said all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, now because of this, this is your why. There's a response to the why. There's a what. Well, what is it? The what is make disciples. The command is to make disciples. We're going to see some these participles that really uh, modify and, and identify how that's to be done. But think about it, you know, this way. Think of making a cake. What, what's the what's the the thrust? Make a cake. So if you were commanded, go make a cake. How would you do that? You would go shopping to the store. Then you would come and you would, you would do baking or you would do mixing. These are participles that describe the end goal of making the cake. We have to see this in, in order to see how he wants us to accomplish the mission. Make disciples. That's the thrust. Now, a few things that we need to consider about this word discipleship. It's a popular word in our modern age. And it's a good word, but the word discipleship actually never occurs in the Bible. Um, the term is a little ambiguous in English. If you ask, you know, a hundred different uh, Christians what discipleship is and looks like and does, you might get a hundred different answers. Um, it can mean my discipleship, right? So in the sense that it's my own pattern of following Jesus, my own pattern of trusting him and learning a, a disciple, in essence, is, is a learner. It's a believing learner. It's, that's the simplistic definition. So it's as a Christian, because you can be a disciple, which is a common term in, in these days of Jesus. These rabbis, these different teachers, had disciples. They had followers. And these followers would literally follow them around everywhere, and they would, they would do everything that their rabbi did. Not only in teaching and commanding them, but then, oh, how is he eating? I eat with my left hand. Any other left-handed eaters in here? Ah, God bless all the lefties. But if my rabbi, and I'm his disciple, ate with his right hand in those days, I would switch, and I would learn to eat right-handed. I would do what the master does. And, And now this concept transferring it to Christianity, in essence, really means it following in the steps of Jesus. You're following your master. Now it's not a, 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 we'll get into it a little bit deeper of what it means, and we're going to spend a good amount of time in January considering what it means and what it looks like for us as a church. But in essence, a disciple, it's not a second or, or a, a, a higher class of Christian. A lot of times people look at that, you become a Christian, yeah, but are you a disciple yet? Acts 14.21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium. In essence, it's used interchangeably. In Acts chapter 11.26, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So in essence, another definition of a disciple is a Christian. It's not become a Christian and then become a disciple. If you're a, a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't have some, we're not separated by different classes of Christians. 
And so when we come to uh, the, the terminology disciple, I, I don't think that terminology is as important as the reality of what a disciple is, of what a disciple does. People need to become Christians and, and people need to be taught how to think and, and how to act and how to live and how to, how to feel as a Christian. What does Christian living look like? That's a disciple, a follower of Jesus, one who looks into the words of Jesus, into the life of Jesus, and follows that, obeys that, faithful to that. Someone who, is, who, who looks at Christ as the one with all authority and submits their life totally and completely to his all authority. For me, discipleship is, is best understood as maturity. If, our, if we're going to say we grow as disciples, it means we should be maturing as men and women of faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the stages of life. I think it's a good way to explain discipleship. You have, well, you have the unborn. <laughs> in, in, in other, Scripture would also call that a, being dead in trespasses and sin. Or you have a human being who's alive, but they're not yet a Christian. God has not yet converted their soul and their heart. They have not put their faith and trust in Christ. They want nothing to do with Christ. But then the power of the gospel goes out. They hear it. They hear this good news of this man, Jesus, who came and lived and died a sacrificial death for their sins and, and, and rose from the dead and offers a gift of life to all who believe. And so when you hear that, you're like, yes, I want that. God does this work in our hearts. He, he, he opens the eyes of the blind. In, in biblical terms, he raises for us from dead to life. You cared nothing for him before. Now you all of a sudden love this, this man, this God, this Savior, this Lord. You want to you submit to him. And so you're born. Born again, according to John chapter 3. There's a rebirth. And what happens when babies are born? A lot of messes are made, <laughs> right? Diapers are changed constantly. And if you didn't put that diaper on, God forbid that car ride home today. It's not going to be pleasant. They make messes of themselves. They can't do things themselves. They're, they're, they're throwing up all over themselves. There's, there's this stage of, of our Christian faith, of, of discipleship, if you will, where we're, we're like infants. We're ignorant. We lack knowledge. We need to learn and grow and then as we do we become like children we begin to grow in our faith and 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 yet even then just like a lot of our own children there's they're marked by this self-centeredness that has to be trained and taught out of them disciplined which is related to discipleship disciplined out it's education it's teaching it's life the christian life is just like that and you move out of childhood, and, and as Paul says, you put away childish things and you become a man. You grow up into young adulthood, and, and you, you, all of a sudden you want to start serving more. There's a, there's a God-centeredness to your life. You become more concerned with others than yourself. This is Christian growth. This is what should be happening in the lives of, of us as disciples, followers of Christ. We should be growing and changing just like we, we shouldn't walk into to, to the worship of the people of God and see a bunch of 30, 40-year-old men with pacifiers in our mouths. Sucking on the bottle. <laughs> I 
This is discipleship. Then you grow up, finally, and you reach this place where you become a parent. And life really changes. There's an intentionality to your life. There's a care, a deep care for, for those whom you are discipling. There's a focus on reproduction, on multiplication, on wanting to see more disciples. There's discussion of strategy and intentionality. There's a, there's a concern on my commute home from work, who should I call today? Who needs encouragement today? Who needs their faith strengthened today? Who should I send that text to today? Who, who can I get with this week and have coffee with just to pray with them? Who can I read Knowing God with? Which is going to be our book of the month in January. Who can, who can, I, who can I call to accountability? Say, hey, brother, would you read this with me? Sister, let's, let's go through this together. That's a, a stage of maturity in Christ. A shift toward helping people grow in their spiritual maturity. And so when we look at these things, we'll be talking about them much more in January. Uh, the focus of it ultimately isn't a, a list of rules or, or, or you know, check boxes to just check off. It's all about relationship. Discipleship is always formed in relationship. That's why we meet together. That's why we come together as the people of God. That's why we spend time together. It's best done in, in the context of relationship. And a lot of times we think just because I know a lot about the Bible, now I'm, I, can, I can actually disciple and I, I can sit there and tell you everything about it when oftentimes those are the ones who lack the most maturity. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's writing to a church who sure knows a lot. And they think they're mature because they sure know a lot. But their level of obedience is much less than their level of their knowledge. Their level of love is lacking. Spiritual maturity means loving others. And so I, I, I go through this to, to call you to, to think about this for a second. Where are you? Are you an infant? Or perhaps you're not even born yet. Do you have a love for Christ? Do you desire to grow and know him? Or do you not even care? Are you sitting here today because someone made you come or because you just, it's, it's, you're, maybe there's some social status and you pat yourself on the back and, and feel good because I, I did my church thing on especially New Year's Eve, it's a New Year's resolutions, or, or is there a, a deep love for, I, I want to know God. I really want my life changed. I, I, God, I need you. Help me. Are you an infant, new to the faith and just messing all over yourself and you need some help and you need to get cleaned up and you, and you need to learn some things? Are you a child or you know some things but man, too much of life is just all about you. It revolves around you. And there's not much of a concern for sharing with your brother. <laughs> it's my toy. That's <laughs> what kids do, right? My life. Stay out. Are you a young adult or you've grown to where you, you're enjoying serving? 
You're, you're focused on, on growing and learning and, and serving other people. God-centered. You're, 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 you want, you're coming before him with this heart of, Lord, I, I depend totally on you. And I'm centered on you. You consider others. Or have you moved into the parent stage to where you're actually taking intentional, purposeful, strategic time to look out at your brothers and sisters and how can I serve them? How can I help them be a better follower of Jesus Christ today in my context? He's the one with all authority. He's the one that makes the command to make disciples. How was this done? Well, before we go there, who is it to? Who do we make disciples of? He says, of all nations. We serve the world. This is people groups. This is ethnicities. This is it's not just necessarily nations in particular like the United States and Mexico. Because within Mexico, for instance, you've got a whole bunch of people groups. You go to Indonesia, you've got up to a thousand people groups. Right in the United States, you've got different cultures and different, different areas of, of, of people that are different from each other. It says you go to every single one. You don't exclude anyone. You, you go to all the nations of the world. He commanded us to go and make disciples among every people. It's a, it's a missionary faith that we have. And so we aim to make disciples of every, every nation, of every ethnic group, of every society, of every religion. Wherever Jesus has the right to be worshipped, which is where? Everywhere. That's where we go. That's where we go. Make disciples of all nations. How? Now here's Jesus' strategy, first going. Again, that go, it, it doesn't sound like it in English. It, and that's oftentimes what's focused on in, in, in the church a lot of times is the going. We've got to go, and that's a big part of it, but the, the, the focus of this text is actually make disciples. How? Going. If you're going to make a disciple, first you've got to get out the door. First you've got you to go. You've got to share the word. You've got to be like, like, like the Marys who were at the tomb, and, and the, the angel says, Come and see the place where he laid. Now go and tell your brothers. Go do something. Go open your mouth. Go, go tell something. And this is a massive part of the commission that many times comfortable Christians ignore and avoid. Or we see it as that's somebody else's job. Now I'm not saying, all right, we all need to just sell everything and move to China. If God calls you to go do, do that, you should, maybe you should do it. But for most of us, the going might look like walk next door. Go to your neighbor. Go to your coworker. Go to your fellow students. And that's the, the thrust of this commission. It's, it's, not, it's an intentionality with exactly where God has put you. So where do I go? Let me ask you this question. Where are you going tomorrow? Well, I'll be at home. Make disciples. Where are you going Tuesday? Uh, I, got, I got class at school. Make disciples. I'm going to work. You got coworkers there? Make disciples. You got to go. That going, the thrust of it is the sharing of the gospel, of the, of the word of God in the sense of sharing the good news with people to see conversions. And oftentimes when we think of make disciples, that's all we think of is, is conversions, and, and that's much more than this. That's just a part of it. Evangelizing the world is a part of making disciples. It, it, it's the beginning of the process, and then the, there's a long process that continues on. 
So we share, we, we share the word. We go. And then we, it says baptizing them. We show the word. We display the allegiance to Jesus Christ. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When someone comes to faith in Christ, the Scripture calls that one to be, to be baptized. They enter into the waters of baptism to identify with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And it's a proclamation to the world that you're on the team. Pastor Hamer used to explain it this way back in the day. He, he'd say it's like you, you, know, you, you tried out for your basketball team at your school and, and you, you got on the team, but you go home and it's like, hey, I, Mom, Dad, I made the team. Oh, yeah? How do I know that? Well, I, I made the team. Okay, I don't see it yet. We'll show up Friday night and you'll see it. And you come out and you show up and guess what you got on? You got on your uniform. If you're out there and everybody else has a uniform, but you're in your street clothes, you're not on the team. At least it doesn't look like it, right? It, there's a display through, through, the, through the ordinance of baptism, which is not, it's a command here. It's not something side note for the Christian. This is believe and be baptized. And it's a call to, to those out there. If you claim Christ, but you have not been baptized, you're disobedient to the call. Baptizing them in the name of the and the Son of the Holy Spirit. I don't understand when Jesus says something so clear. It's like, it's like the wedding ring. I've ex- tried to explain to especially young people w- with uh, what baptism is. It's like wearing your wedding ring. It's like showing the world my new allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. I've de- I'm dead with him. I'm alive to him. His, 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 life is all about him now. But yet you don't want to get baptized. It's like me as a married man taking my ring off and hiding it. That'd be a problem, wouldn't it? I wouldn't show a lot of faithfulness to my wife. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the entrance into a new allegiance. And the experience of God in these three persons is, is the essential basis of, of discipleship. And notice it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Another reference to the deity of Christ. Going, baptizing, and then teaching. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The followers of Jesus are responsible to present the whole counsel of God to those who are made disciples. How are disciples made? Through teaching. That's why we are here every Sunday. That's why we highlight the teaching of the Word of God every Sunday. That's why we spend a lot of time trying to to teach you the Word of God, to to learn and to grow in, in who Jesus is, in what He wants us to do. We have to be people of the Word of God. His teachings so done by example of life. Scripture calls those who are mature to be examples to the, to the rest of the body, to the rest of, of those who, are, who may be struggling. There might be children of the faith. They might be the young adults of the faith, and they need an example. They need to know what it looks like to apply this particular command of Christ into my life. How do I actually disciple my, my kids? How do, I, how do I live as a married man in a fallen world? How do I, how do I love my wife? How do, how, do you, how do you serve one another in such a way? How do, we, how do we be the church? We need the Word, and we need to live the Word, and we need examples. <coughs> Where does this happen? <coughs> It happens everywhere we go. And I don't, and I, and I don't think we shouldn't come up with particular venues and, 
and, and, and different things that we can do to facilitate this, but Scripture all over the place tells us how to do discipleship. Titus 2, 4, older women, you're to train younger women. In 2 Timothy, Paul trained Timothy to train others to train others. Discipleship. In Ephesians, fathers are to train their children. In Hebrews, all Christians are to exhort each other every day to avoid sin and to stir each other up to love and good works. In 1 Peter, we're to use our gifts to serve others. In, in Acts, Priscilla and Aquila, on the spur of the moment, it seems, explain the way of God more accurately to Apollos. All of this is discipleship, and we can go on and on and on. And, and again, we're going to be doing much of this in January as we, as we go through our core values of our church and, and what, we're, what we're about and, and how we're going to move forward into the new year as a church. But ultimately, we look at the call today, and it's a command, and I just want to ask you, will, we, will you obey the command of Christ? It's not a comfortable call. It's a costly command, a costly commitment, but this is our privilege this is the new creation mandate. Just as at the beginning, God blessed them in Genesis 1 and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. How do we do that? How do we fulfill such a, a call? Adam and Eve dropped the ball. Jesus fulfilled it. Now we go forth in his power, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and we live for him. This certainly requires a long This isn't done in a week or two. It's a lifetime. A pastor I heard once said that he became a brand new Christian and as he was, he'd become a Christian and he, he's like, he went to a pastor, that he, an older pastor he loved and respected. And he's like, what do, I, what do I do? He said, well, just read your Bible. So he's like, okay. So he went and read his Bible and, and like a month later he comes back, he read his whole Bible and he's like, okay, what do I do now? He's like, well, you read your whole Bible? Yeah, I read my whole Bible. Okay, great. Now study the Bible. Well, how do I do that? Well, oh, pick a book and just study through. Well, how long is that going to take? month, two, three? Depends how long the book is. It could take you a while. Okay, then what do I do after that? Pick another one and, and keep picking them until you die. That's, that's what we do. It's not a sprint. It's a walk. And one day at a time. As we look at what this call is, the vastness of it, the overwhelmingness of it, the human impossibility of it, we could potentially get discouraged. And we look at our lives and we think, how far I am from, from being there. But let me leave you with an incredible promise. Number four, the promise to the commissioned. The one with all authority in heaven and on earth says, make disciples of all nations, going, baptizing, and teaching, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. That's a big task. God, I don't feel equipped. I don't feel fit for that. I'm actually fearful of that. And if you feel that way, let me just say, welcome to the club. Welcome to my club. Welcome to Peter's club. Welcome to you know, every, everyone's club. It goes back to whose commission is it? It's his mission. And the beauty he leaves us with here is in verse, the second part of verse 20, he says, and behold, which we looked at last week, means look at this. Pulls this out. 
Here's your mission. Now look at this. Listen, I'm with you. I am. I am, Jesus says. I am with you. Always. To the end of the age. The promise he gives to his disciples is himself. His own presence. The the promise of his complete presence. And the the adverb there, always, I'm I'm, I'm with you, always, renders an an expression found in, in the New Testament only here where it strictly means the the whole of every day. Not just the horizon down the road, just the tomorrows of the future are in view here each and every day and every moment of every day as we live it. I'm with you. I'm with you when you're full of joy. I'm with you when you're down in the dumps. Make disciples. I'm with you when you're discouraged. I'm with you when you're on the mountaintop encouraged. Make disciples. I'm with you through your loss. I'm with you in your pain. Make disciples. And man, I know we're good Christian people. We can get so committed to some wonderfully good things. And in the midst of even being committed to some good things, we can miss out on the greatest of things, which is make disciples. That's why you're here. Make disciples. Yeah, but this all the buts. They're all gone. Why? I'm with you always. I'm with you. The power of this promise of the presence is measured by who it is that makes such a promise. I'm with you. All the days, without break, no days off. All the time. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And here's what this means. This means guaranteed success. If you're about the mission, it's guaranteed success. And you think, well, I haven't made a whole bunch of converts yet. If you opened your mouth out of faithfulness, that's success. If you made a meal because your Christian brother or sister was sick or or had a baby or whatever and you were faithful out of love for them, make this meal and deliver it to them, that's success. If you're serving the lonely, the bereaved, that's success. If you're holding the hand of the dying, keeping their eyes on Christ to the end, that's success. Faithfulness is success to the mission. The results are in God's hands, but the question is, are we being faithful to the command? Are we making disciples? Are we going? Are we baptizing? Are we teaching? 2024 is upon us, and as a church, as we've been through a lot of ups and downs, it's time we get serious about our obedience to our Lord's Great Commission. Jesus sent for a purpose, to reveal God, to redeem sinners, and and he set his face like a flint to see it accomplished. And we too 
of His disciples, filled with His Spirit, with His presence, are sent for a purpose. To share the good news. To show the love of Christ. To declare forgiveness of sins. Restoration. Hope. Joy. Peace. To serve the Lord of all creation, heaven and earth, the one with all authority. And so what characteristics would you expect to find in a church that's being faithful to such a commission? And as you take that home and think about that this week, will you take responsibility to be that part of the church? We're starting with a few simple things. We're going to read the Bible this year. Imagine that. A lot of us read it. Now, again, you may not be equipped. Now, Pastor David shared the other week he struggled with the reading plan, and I know he's in the Word every day. You don't have to read through the Bible in a year with us, but you should be in your Bible every day, Christian. You should not be neglecting the Word of God. You should be a people of prayer. We should... Prayer should dominate our lives because we're a dependent people and we, it's, it's like the air we breathe. And then we should be faithful to worship. We should come expectantly to give our worship to the one, with, the one who has all authority in heaven on earth and to worship him. We'll talk more about this whole concept of discipleship in the coming month and I encourage you to, 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 to be faithful. Be faithful. And let's have an incredible year where we are a church fulfilling the mission.